0: And now let's open our Bibles to Mary's song. First chapter of Luke's Gospel as we continue to work our way through Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Luke 1, beginning with verse 46. Will you bow with me in prayer? And now, gracious Father, as we come to your written word, given to us by divine inspiration, we, your people, submit to its authority. We ask that you will help us to understand the text, and we thank you that we are a part of those generations upon generations that have been saved by sovereign free grace. But, Father... Undoubtedly, there also are there in the midst of your people today, here this morning, some who do not know the Savior at all. Perhaps they think they do and do not. Perhaps they are deceived. Perhaps they are overtly opposed to the gospel. But, Father, whatever the state of the heart may be, lost and undone is that soul. And we pray that. Young and old will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in our services of worship. We pray that we would never have a service in which someone did not come to know Christ. When the word is preached to your people, O Lord, you have given to us a glorious gospel upon which to dwell, but that same gospel by which we initially come to faith in Christ is the same gospel by which you help us to continue to grow in grace, and so the same gospel for all, applied differently, but the same gospel Save the lost, build your people up in the most holy faith, and bless, we pray, through the Holy Spirit, the reading and exposition of your word, for we ask it humbly in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Standing together, Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 46. This is the word of God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned To her home. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the greatest need of our day is a high biblical view of who God is. Unhappily, the church in our day, by and large, has a very low view of God. Rather than a king upon his throne who rules and reigns, who can save as he will, he is an impotent God, not the God of the Bible, the God who saves, the God who is able to do all things, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We need to return to this high view of God. And surely, in our culture, you see the results of a very low view, unbiblical view Of who God is. When we come to Mary's song, the Magnificat that we have read this morning, we are struck with this very high, reverent, awe filled, wondrous view of who God is. If you were brought up on the prayer book tradition, the Old English prayer book, and I use that in my personal devotions very often, the the Psalm portion every day, other portions frequently. If you were brought up on the old English prayer book tradition, you would be using Mary's song, the Magnificat, you would recite it in evening prayer every evening. Now imagine that, every evening, whether in a worship service or whether in your personal devotions, you would recite the Magnificat. I am a firm believer in rote, by the way. I think it's good pedagogy and the church has not done well to set aside rote learning, It is very important that we have rote learning. By rote, I do not mean that it doesn't touch the heart. I mean that it is repetitive. So imagine that. And doesn't it make sense that Cranmer, way, way back, would put the Magnificat into evening prayer? Because where can you go in Scripture and find a better summary of what worship is all about? Of what what it means to praise God, what it means to think upon his character and to dwell upon him than in the portion of scripture that we have just read together. Now you will recall that we saw last week how Mary visits Elizabeth and we saw the sign of the leaping baby. Elizabeth then praised God, now Mary praises God. He who was in her womb was the eternal God. And so she breaks out into song, a song about justice, about redemption, about mercy, about salvation, about grace. So let's ask this question that will help us to understand Mary's song this morning Why does Mary praise God? Why does Mary praise God? And we find in the text four reasons. So as always, you need the text open in your laps. Four reasons. Mary praises God, first of all, because God saves. God saves. Look with me again at verses 46 to 48. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed." So she says, she breaks out into song, she breaks out into praise. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And it's a present tense. Now that's important because it helps us to recognize that her heart has been cherishing God's revelation to her. And there, at that moment, she can contain no longer, it bursts its banks And she feels compelled, and of course by divine inspiration because this is also God's word, she feels compelled to worship and to praise God. Mr. Spurgeon made the statement, countless holy influences flow from habitual maintenance of great thoughts of God. Let me read that to you again. Countless holy influences flow from habitual maintenance of great thoughts of God. Now that's true, isn't it? If you habitually have great thoughts filling your mind, filling your soul, controlling your affections, great thoughts of God's holiness will drive you to sovereign grace. Great thoughts of who God is will keep the Christian from sin. What he says is true, but he also said, incalculable mischiefs flow from our small thoughts of him, and that certainly is the case. So we have Mary who had habitually maintained great thoughts of God. And it's very obvious, isn't it? Because as she breaks out into praise, we find it's full of Scripture. Not necessarily exact quotations, but allusions to Scripture. Scripture so filled this young woman's heart. And remember, she's somewhere between 12 and 16 years old. Certainly no older than 16. And she breaks out with all of this praise within her heart, within her soul. Had we time, we could find that she's quoting or alluding to passages from Exodus. We would find passages from the, from the Psalms, many in the Psalms, but especially to the passage that Joel read to us this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 2. There you will remember that Hannah said, "'My heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in thy salvation.'" But Mary says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, Hannah said, There is none holy like the Lord. Mary says in verse 49, Holy is his name. Hannah prayed, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. But Mary prays in verse 52, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. Hannah prayed, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. But Mary prays in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Now do you not see that Mary's mind, heart, affections are completely saturated in Holy Scripture. Parents, where did Mary learn that? Well, she sat in the synagogue and she heard the word read. Yes. Where did she learn it? She learned it at home. Reformation starts at home. The work of the Spirit of God in the heart begins ordinarily in the home. We call that covenant theology here. You see how often the scriptures and even this song reference God's work from generation to generation? She learned this at home. Do we want our children to know the Lord, to serve the Lord? Do we want their minds and hearts to be filled and saturated with Holy Scripture? She learned this undoubtedly from her father and at her mother's knee. That's where she learned it. But there's something more than that. This woman's heart wanted to know these things. The Holy Spirit has been working. I wonder, is there some young man, some young woman here today, the Holy Spirit is so working in your heart that you say, I love the Lord. I love Him and i want to know him you know him through his word saturate your mind and heart with his word have a heart for god and a heart for his word and so from the old testament she learned that god is savior that's why she praises him in these verses isaiah 43:11 god says i even i am the lord and beside me there is no savior there is no other None but Him. And so from the depths of her heart, Megalune, great praise, extolling God. She knows this God experientially as her own God and Savior. Do you? Do you know Him as your Savior and as your Lord? Perhaps you have a heart that never praises. You don't praise God. If you do not praise God and it is absent from the soul, The reason has to be because you do not know Him as your Savior. Because those of us who know the depths from which we have been taken by grace and what He has done when He has saved us from our sins, we praise God, not as consistently as we wish, not as faithfully, not with the longing that we might want to see, but we do praise God. It is in our hearts. And you know, when we think of God as Savior, it's a wondrous thing to know that she breaks out into this great song, but you know more about that than she did here. You understand more because you have a complete scripture. You know that the baby in her womb was the incarnate God. You know that he would grow up and obey the law that you and I broke, that he would go to a cross and pay the penalty of our sins. You know that behind your salvation is the plan of the triune God to redeem and to save us as people from our awful sins. We know our utter helplessness. We know from the word of God that it took God to come down into this world to redeem and to save us. But notice verse 48 with me, will you? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, this is what is called the Hati Clause. In other words, it's a because clause. She is saying, because of this, I am praising God, which means that her praise, though very emotional as it should be, was intelligent praise. She has reasons for her praise. Her praise is grounded in her understanding of who God is and what God has done. All true praise is that kind of praise but she especially praises him because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In other words, she is praising God because she understands that when the angel Gabriel came to her and said, you would conceive supernaturally in the womb, that it was sheer condescension. It was sheer condescending grace. May I remind you of how condescending that grace was? And how wondrous it is, when in Philippians chapter 2, we are told, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You know more than Mary at this point that the condescending grace of God was God himself, the second person of the Trinity, coming into this world in order that he might die for our sins and save us from our guilt. God miraculously stooped in the miracle of the Incarnation Through sheer sovereign grace. No wonder then. She floats in praise. And the lower she is in her own eyes. The sweeter is God's word. The more abased she is. The sweeter are all of God's promises to her. Found in the word of God. And so she praises because God is her savior. Secondly. She also praises because of God's character, God's character, focused upon particularly in verses 49 and 50. Will you look again? 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so she focuses especially upon God's power, his power. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, ha dunatos, his creative power, the creative power that has formed within her womb, this wondrous child that is to be born. Remember in verses 34 and 35 of this chapter, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So she praises Him because of His power, His almighty power, but also because of His holiness. Look again at verse 49. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Now, holiness means that God is transcendent in His adorable majesty, and it means that He is completely separate from sin why she carries the incarnate God in her womb. Imagine that. Imagine that. God, God upon his throne, God, holy in all of his ways, transcendent, majestic, separate from sin, is the one who is formed in the virgin's womb, who would come as a substitute to uphold God's holiness and righteousness and to pay the penalty of his holy law on the behalf of sinners like you and me, does your soul magnify the Lord this morning for the crimson, crimson, bloody sacrifice of your Savior who came into this world to redeem you? Does it? No? Yes. And she returns to God's power in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of her hearts, of their hearts, is power once again. Man can do nothing to save, nothing to save, nothing. Let me stress it. God's arm is made bare. He reigns in power. He's not wringing his hands because he wants somebody to be saved and that person is not being saved or because some enemy of his has not yet come to judgment. He is almighty in his Now, pastor, you say you don't want people here to get the impression that they can't do some little something in order that they might be accepted with God, some little something to bring themselves to God, some little something to at least put themselves in a savable state, do you? Oh, do I not? That's exactly what I want everyone to understand. It is God alone who saves, God alone who shows his power and might. We can do nothing apart from his sovereign grace and mercy which is the next attribute dwelt upon in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, Elias, mercy, has as its corresponding Old Testament word, the word chesed. Chesed is an almost untranslatable word. Sometimes the old version would translate it, the tender mercies of God. But keep your finger here and turn to the 103rd Psalm, and you'll find an example of what Mary has in mind when she speaks of the mercy of God, the chesed of God, because she would have prayed this prayer, of course, in Aramaic. She would have heard it read in Hebrew from time to time as well in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 11. Are you there? Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. This is chesed, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's what she has in mind. And so Mary praises him because of the fullness of his being and attributes, which is called his name. Look at verse 49, Luke 1. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Name means the sum total of all of God's attributes. It means his character, his being, who he is. And so when we look at the scriptures and we find all of the names of God, the sum total of all of those is his name. May I remind you of some of them. I am the Lord, the Almighty, the great and dreadful God, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the King of Kings, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord our righteousness, the only wise God, the God of peace, the God of hope, the blessed and only sovereign, the King eternal, immortal, and invisible, our Father in heaven, and the ultimate summary of God's name, the Father, the Son, And the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And may I remind you of something that Mary, Mary cannot now understand, but she would come to understand, the church would come to understand, that we now understand, that the place in which we see the greatness, the goodness, the wonder of his attributes most of all is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where, where, I ask, can you find God's attributes more brightly than in the incarnation and atonement of our Savior? You look to the cross and what do you find? Infinite love, infinite wisdom, eternal election, unchangeable covenant promises, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You find mercy and you find justice. And they kiss one another in order that you and I might be redeemed from our awful sins. Last night I was reading from Bethune, old theologian. You probably never heard of his name. He's not well known, but he was a great theologian. And I was reading just to warm my own heart. And he said this. The exercise of divine qualities is necessary to the idea of God, but that they could meet in blessing on souls of guilty sinners. No created mind could ever have conjectured or believed to be possible had not God made it manifest. His mercy surprises and startles the moral universe with a mild and exquisite glory transcending all other emanations from the light unapproachable in which the mystery of his being dwells. It is brighter than justice, softer than goodness, for it is justice and goodness blending their beams in mercy, his choice, his delight, the good pleasure of his sovereign will. Thirdly, Mary praises God because God is the Lord of history. The Lord of history. Look with me at verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Now, there are six verbs here that are probably at least five of them, probably all of them, all six are what we call prophetic aorists. Now, what that means is that she's speaking about these things as if they had already taken place, but by prophetic blessing, she is seeing those things that are in the future. An example of that, of course, is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. You've heard me speak about this a number of times, in which in that golden chain of redemption... We read, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul in Romans 8.30 looks ahead to the future when we will be glorified but he speaks of it as already having having taken place because it's that certain. Now, I think that's what Mary is doing here. Mary looks ahead prophetically to the day when the Lord will turn the tables and will be vindicated in his sovereign character. How will he be vindicated? Well, he will scatter the proud, she says. He will scatter the proud. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. Do you not read the news? Do you not hear about ISIS? Does no Christian heart long for the day in which he will scatter the proud? That's what Mary's seeing. When God in his goodness, his grace, his righteousness will be vindicated in the judgment of the wicked. And Luke dwells upon this, of course, in other places. In Luke 18... Luke, you turn there. Luke 18, 9 through 14. You will remember that he dwells upon this whole issue of pride. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, the Greek text has a definite article, the sinner, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And what Mary sees is the day that is coming, and she speaks of it as already having taken place because it is so certain in which those who raise their thoughts and attitudes and heads against God Almighty will be humbled into the very dust, and those who have been humbled by the sovereign free grace of God, persecuted in this world, going through the hardships that come with being a Christian, will in that day of judgment be exalted. He exalts the humble. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And so he is the one who removes rulers from their thrones. He sets up one and he pulls down another. In his sovereignty, as one old theologian said, how extreme must be the misery of the one whose enemy is God-omnipotent. And in eschatological reversal, he will fill the hungry with good things. When Christ comes again, indeed we already know it in experience in part, but when Christ comes again, he will fill the hungry with good things in that eternal inheritance that belongs to you as people. But then fourthly, Mary praises God because of covenant mercies, covenant mercies. And we'll see this more when we come to the Benedictus in a couple of weeks, Zechariah's song, Zechariah's prophecy. But in verses 54 and 55, Mary puts it this way. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Again, verse 54, probably a prophetic aorist. He has helped his servant Israel. Again, she's seeing what God will do in the future, speaks of it as a present reality. And to whom does this apply? Well, you say, of course it applies to Israel. Well, who is that? Turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, just for one of many examples. And let me remind you to whom such verses apply. Who are Abraham's offspring? Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Well, does that include Gentiles? Verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The point is, Even though Mary has in mind the faithful remnant of Israel, in the wider extension of the grace of God, this text applies to you sitting here this morning, you Gentiles, for whom Christ has paid the penalty of the curse of the law when he shed his blood and in whom now, because of the Holy Spirit, he dwells. The promise is anchored all the way back in the covenant that is made with Abraham and behind that in the eternal counsels of the triune God. And it applies from eternity through Abraham, through Moses, through David, to you sitting here today. And William Hendrickson said it so beautifully, I can't help but tell you what he said The promise was not annulled by the giving of the law or by the first coming of Christ. That mercy still flows from the throne of grace. The covenant promise still holds. It is on this basis of this promise that believing parents have their children baptized. The substance of the promise, I will be your God, hence salvation full and free is realized in the hearts of all those who by sovereign grace and through God-given faith embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. To whom does this apply? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. It applies to you. You are the ones who are more than conquerors through him who loved you. You are the ones who are joint heirs with Christ. You are the ones promised ultimate victory in his victory when he comes again and brings judgment on the world. And... Once again we see, as we have been seeing in passage after passage after passage in this early portion of Luke, that it is altogether based upon his character, the character of the one who says, I am the one who has spoken. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, God Always keeps his word. Always, always, always God keeps his word. That fact should be a terror to the unbeliever because the word of promise to those who do not know Christ is eternal punishment for your sins. And we called you to faith in Christ, but that God has spoken the promise should be the joy of the believer because God has promised to you salvation, full and free, persevering grace, an inheritance undefiled, new heavens and new earth, and God cannot lie. He cannot lie. So, will you bring some things together with me as we come to the end of Mary's song? Now, remember, Mary has praised God because God saves, because of God's character, because God is the Lord of history, and because of covenant mercies. Now, I know that this song was prayed, sung, spoken at a particular point in redemptive history, but We also live in the reality of these truths. And there is no better summary of the essence of our theology. There is no better summary... We use the word Calvinism around here. That's the church historical term for biblical Christianity. That's all we mean. There is no better summary of our Calvinism. What is a Calvinist? He is the man, the woman, the child, who by grace has seen that God is high and lifted up and exalted but has condescended to redeem and to save him from his sin, that it is altogether dependent upon his grace. There is no better summary, wouldn't you agree, of that theology than here in the Magnificat? There is no better summary, really, of our covenant theology. So that if Mary can sing, because you have spoken your covenant word... These things are true. These things will always be true of you. These are the things that you will achieve and accomplish. Can't you also sing of God's covenant faithfulness? Do we not sometimes open our hymnal and sing, A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing, Nor fear with your righteousness on my person and offering to bring? The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view." The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever his soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace." Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. That's the promise of the covenant of grace. That's what Mary is singing. That's what you and I are now privileged to sing. And I think the Magnificat also, would you not agree, is perhaps one of the best summaries in all of God's word of the purpose of our lives. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And what is Mary doing? Glorifying, extolling, Megalune, great praise. She's praising God and she is fulfilling the purpose of her existence, which is to glorify God. Say, do you know that, by the way, that the reason God made you was that you might praise him with your life, with your words. And if you are lost and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not fulfilling the purpose of your existence. He has created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And just think about this, people of God. This God, this God of whom we have seen, this God of power, this God of mercy, this God of grace, this condescending, transcendent, holy God, this God who saves, this God is your God. Your God. This God is your God, and you are his people. So my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. How about yours? And God's people said, Amen. Amen.